welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Today joining us we have Paul Savage. Paul is the managing director for Saviour Medical and has had a quite a varied background. He walked into a lifeboat station on his 17th birthday and has never really left, initially volunteering at Pool and then latterly with a tower lifeboat in London. He joined the RNLI full-time in 2005 as a clinical operations manager and was responsible for the operational medical response of all of the UK's lifeboat crews. He's also been working as the architect and custodian of the clinical governance for the RNLI and advised on all matters to do with casualty care, from kit design to course design to casualty-friendly boat design. For some of this work, he was awarded an OBE in 2013. A year later, he started his own company and now delivers a mixed portfolio of pre-hospital-related medical work and uses a lot of check card-based learning. He's involved with clinical governance of the Ghost Guard, lectures at university, and is also on the UK Search and Rescue Medical Group, which looks at the future directions for healthcare within Search and Rescue. Paul, welcome. Thanks so much for coming on to chat to us. Thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure. So I guess from our point of view, the, the real piece that's fascinating here is about check card medicine. What do you mean by check cards? So I, I suppose my, my journey began winding the clock back to a fresh-faced 17-year-old who'd joined the RNLI, as, as you kindly said, working out of pool in Dorset, and took very early days, the RNLI first aid course, which is was a three-day course. It was basically HSE first aid at work with a little bit of, by the way, chaps, there's some morphine left over from the Second World War. Use it if you need it. And there's a little bit of Entonox as well. Off you crack. We actually sat, you know, in a St. John's Hall and, and took that course and then was expected to go out. And at 18, you know, I found myself 10 miles off the entrance of Pool Harbour with a critically ill patient who died. And I thought, that was rubbish. You know, not only was it rubbish that he died, but it was rubbish that I couldn't do the things that I was meant to do because I'd taken this three-day first aid course and it didn't prepare me for anything. And this happened at four o'clock in the morning and I was tired. And, you know, at four o'clock in the morning, I struggled to even put my T-shirt on the right way around, let alone look after a guy with quite catastrophic head injuries. And so when I was given the reins of the RNLI's medicine in 2005, I was just determined to create change. And all the things that had happened to me between sort of 17 and my uh, mid-30s, came home to roost. And I tried to dissect all the things that had gone wrong. And at that time, it became highly apparent that the bizarre thing about first aid, and I will call them sub-medical professional or sub-healthcare professional levels of medical intervention. So I call that everything to be, if you look at, say, the Faculty of Pre-Hospital Care, Royal College Surgeons, Edinburgh's FEM framework. I'm talking about levels sort of E to A, because obviously paramedic kicks in at level F, and that's your healthcare professional level and upwards. But sort of levels E to A, the bulk of that is done from memory. We sit, we learn, and a lot of this is sort of classic three-year intervention courses. So you get trained, three years later you get trained, three years later you get trained. And then two years, 11 months, and 21 days into it, you get faced with something horrendous. And you're supposed to pull up your memory. And that's where, in my opinion, things were going drastically wrong. It's an interesting thought because actually, even beyond your level E, so once you're in that employed, badged 
paramedic, doctor, nurse, whatever it is. You know, a lot of the kind of critical stuff we do, actually, we do a course every three years or sometimes once in a lifetime. And we're expected to retain that information, even though it's not in frequent use. Yeah. And it's fascinating when you start to actually look into the neurophysiology of learning. So I'm in no way, shape or form neuro, but from my understanding when we initially learn something a lot of that processing is going on in our prefrontal cortex and it's only when we've actually really learned a pattern of movement that this then gets moved from our prefrontal cortex down into subcortical regions and that sort of explains why you know when you're learning to drive a car you really have to think about it because it's all going on in your prefrontal cortex but once you're an experienced car driver you can drive, eat a sandwich, talk to somebody, listen to the radio, and not that you should, you know, play with your mobile phone. And you arrive at work and you go, hmm, I hope those traffic lights weren't red. Why? Because everything you've done as far as driving that car has come from those subcortical regions, freeing up that prefrontal space to have the conversation or eat the sandwich or tweak with your radio or whatever you've done. But the fascinating thing is, when we become under duress, and I'll call it for want of a better term, bandwidth, you know, when we are completely... Uh, bandwidth our brain actually inhibits our prefrontal cortex and it's the prefrontal cortex that's acting a little bit like computer ram trying to access the subcortical areas and so you can't get to that procedural memory you can't get to the well i should be putting in an airway now or i should be doing x because the prefrontal cortex has been shut down because you're already under bandwidth we know this it's just the fascinating neurophysiology behind it's why people freeze you see experienced people freeze and i think when you look at people and bear in mind this started life initially away from healthcare professionals and i will come to healthcare professionals in a tick but when you look at the the sort of people it was initially aimed at some of these people would be taking a course and then not seeing a patient for two years maybe even two and a half years because you know medicine in the search and rescue arena some teams are very busy some teams are not so busy and you'd never underestimate how also these people are scared when you're a healthcare professional, you're so used to treating patients that you don't sometimes realize that people who aren't used to treating patients but have a responsibility to do so are scared. And one of the big surveys we did in the RLI in the time just proved how fearful volunteer crew members were of medicine. They would do anything else but medicine. And these aren't people who are scared because these are people that will hack their way through a horrendous storm to get to you, but then really didn't want to touch you and do any sort of clinical interventions with you because that was more scary than getting there in the storm and why because they were relying on memory and their memory was letting them down it's really interesting it very much chimes with what we see even with medical professionals teaching people in a context that's not familiar to them so taking your gp out of your surgery or your practice nurse and then teaching them a skill and then getting them to reproduce that skill but within a, a simulated environment and their brain goes to jelly and it, even if they're technically familiar with the skill itself the decision making process to get them to that point is often dulled i guess exactly it's that sort of bandwidth effect that we were just talking about so for example i've got a couple of police forces using these cards and the reason why police officers might be at bandwidth at the point of treating the patient for example if they're a firearms team and they've just taken a position and shot somebody and then they have to switch from assault to treatment. You know, their assault or the car chase has already put them at bandwidth. And now they've got to try and come down from that level. Wherever you are, if medicine is not your 
100% role. So be you a firefighter, be you a lifeboat crew, be you mountain rescue, lowland rescue, coast guard, uh, police. Medicine is one of your tools in your toolbox. And you have many other tools that you have to learn. And you only potentially pick up the medical tool once in a blue moon. And that's why you get these various sort of crescendo effects. Either the job itself has put you at bandwidth. You know, if you're a firefighter, you might be at a horrendous RTC or in a big old blaze. If you're a police officer, as we said, you might have been in a car chase. If your lifeboat crew, the weather might be horrendous. Or you might be just fearful of medicine. For whatever reason, you arrive at this patient at bandwidth, unable to process the memory that has been learned, and you stall. And if you stall, then it's not great, obviously, for the end result for the patient. And that's where this whole desire to come away from memory and the bizarreness of everyone, a non-healthcare professional, treating people from memory, which isn't anywhere else. You, you won't find that. So talk us through the approach that the cards take in that case. So we started with the concept. I made some cross comparisons to the airline industry. And it's fascinating when you look at the differences between the two, because the airline industry starts from the position of saying humans make errors. We accept that humans make errors, and therefore we will put in as many systems as we can to stop errors. Whereas healthcare isn't like that. Healthcare is sort of like, do your best, and then when there's an error, we'll, we'll have a big inquiry about it. And it just came across as, why are we doing it like this? Why do we not accept that actually humans make errors, and let's work that piece out? So what I initially did was sit and scribble and, and look at the RNLI syllabus at that time and the equipment levels. And I'm very specific here. You know, a check card has to exactly match the responders' training and equipment. Therefore, no two sets of check cards that we've subsequently produced are the same per organization because it's got to exactly match your syllabus and exactly match your kit to guide that person through that process. And actually, what you end up with is a collection of cards that are showing and demonstrating from patient assessment through to patient monitoring, through to any drug patterns, through to actual individual treatment of conditions. Everything that person's likely to see. The criticism that's always levelled at comparisons with the aviation industry is that in the aviation industry, there is a, a set number of things that can go wrong in a set number of contexts. Whereas medicine is incredibly varied. And you mentioned yourself, you know, there's a few scenarios there, whether it's people being at sea in a hoolie or up a hill or post-firefight, how can a set of cards try and encapsulate all of those variables, let alone the variables within the patient itself? Good question. But the cards don't mitigate for your environment. You know, your other training mitigates for that. So if you're a firefighter, you'll be making yourself you know, safe from that fire perspective, first of all. If you're at sea, you'll be bringing your patient to a position of safety, first of all. So oftentimes, rescue is the first medicine. You know, that's one of our, our sort of sayings in search and rescue is, you know, affecting the rescue of the patient can sometimes be the first step of medicine. But after that, it is very much a case of allowing somebody to literally open up a booklet. And even if they slow time, go line by line by line, nothing is missed. And, and what we found was the levels of increasing confidence. We did a, a survey basically six years down the line and nine years down the line as far as the RNLI was concerned. And we found nine years down the line a 50% increase in survival from our own statistics. And we found this massive boost in confidence that suddenly people weren't scared because actually they could just open up something and go line by line by line and know that they were doing their utter best and know that they wouldn't make any mistakes if they just 
followed the cards, literally. And it becomes very didactic. And, you know, some people will criticize it and say, oh, it's too structured. It it doesn't allow for variables, etc. But for example, let me just give you this thing. And, And it's very easy when you have a lot of knowledge and education, if you're a a doctor or a paramedic or a nurse, it's easy to make things complicated because life is complicated. I understand in medicine, there's no black or white, there's a lot of gray. But when you are sub-healthcare professional level, everything has to be black or white because you don't have a clinical education to work out the gray. And that's quite a crucial point. You know, when you're a clinician, you understand that it's a bit like, and I'm joking here and not meaning to offend anyone, but never ask a doctor to do frontline triage because they'll probably put everyone at P1 because they can see what's going to happen down the line because they have an incredible brain and can say, that person's fine now, but I know X, Y, and Z time down the line, he's not going to be fine. But that doesn't help your initial sift where you want some ones, twos, and threes. The more tools you have in the toolbox, the more confused you can get. Not confused, but the more the gray gets grayer. And when you are at a sub-healthcare professional level, you can't have gray because you have no clinical education to fall back on. So you just want black or white. I'll give you an example. And just bear with me for one minute. You know, for example, why in some healthcare professional courses do they insist on using Latin words? Why do we insist on teaching the anatomy and physiology of the heart? Because I can guarantee you an HSE first aid at work course level, A&P of a heart makes no difference to the chest compressions anyone gives. So why not bin the 20 minutes A&P that the person will forget in six weeks anyway, and just get them doing 20 minutes more chest compression. So actually their chest compressions are a better, higher quality standard, and they've got some muscle memory for what actually doing 20 minutes of solid chest compressions is like. Or let's look at head injuries. My old RNLI syllabus that I managed to cull in in 2006, we had, of a 24-hour course, we had nearly two hours on head injuries. So that's really important because booms don't have airbags, and we do see a lot of head injuries in, in maritime search and rescue. But what is the point of filling a lifeboat crew member's head with the differences between basal skull fracture, compressional head injury, concussional head injury, contracute, etc., when actually they can do nothing different? The only thing they can do is maintain that patient's airway, immobilize their C-spine, oxygenate them, keep them 15 degrees head up to reduce their ICP and bring them home because they have no other tools in their toolbox. So actually, what difference does it make in that frontline treatment? And I think that's a long answer to your very short question of that's why a set of check cards can work at sub-healthcare professional level because actually your kit and your education limits your treatment opportunities and therefore why not just keep it simple why make it any more hard than it has to be it's really interesting and you keep referring back to looking at this from a sub-healthcare professional level but actually i'm very aware that there's a huge amount of healthcare professionals who don't do things in their routine day job that they're suddenly expected to do because the ambulance service has called them up or because they come across an RTC or because they're the you know rural GP slash practice nurse slash paramedic out on an island and there isn't anybody else around to help them. And they end up in a very similar boat. How translatable do you think that approach is? I think the approach is highly translatable. We've done an interesting set of cards for the University of Edinburgh for their students and staff members who go on wilderness expeditions and they go all over the world. And they do take at times people with, for example, quite extensive drug portfolios with them. So you can make the cards healthcare professional level as well. And we have with these cards, these are aimed at wilderness medicine and have a significant number of drug protocols for a whole variety of conditions for exactly that reason. But it is interesting. It's the healthcare professional level that most often criticise this approach. 
they will throw mud at it left, right, and centre. And, and the institutional arrogance in some places of the healthcare profession is what stopped this sort of device, I think, moving forwards. Not in all cases, by any means, but in a lot of cases. And, and you know, it's a very good way to get chucked out of a dinner party because if you start talking about check cards when you've got a table full of paramedics and doctors, it depends if you want dessert or not. And if you want dessert, keep quiet. If you don't want dessert, just say what you think about check cards. And it's amazing what comes back at you that, oh, it's too simplistic. You know, you've made it too easy. Medicine's not that easy. And I turn around oftentimes and say, well, surely J.R. Calc is just a glorified pocketbook of check cards because it's telling you drug protocols. It's telling you certain algorithms that you don't want to have to remember in the heat of the moment. And there's some gentle pushback on that. And as I say, it depends if you want dessert or not, but how far you keep pushing. But it is quite amazing that some high-end medical teams, some of the HEMS teams in particular, are all over check cards. It seems to be the middle ground where there tends to be some pushback with, you know, I, I can't possibly do something on a check card. And I just encourage them to stop and look and just think and take that step back. And and we did have, interestingly, you know, when we were introducing them to the RNLI, I said how well they went down with lifeboat crew, but they didn't go down well at all with lifeguards. As you know, the RNLI has a, a large lifeguard service and the lifeguards tend to be younger, maybe doing this as sort of seasonal jobs or summer jobs. And initially there's a real pushback. We're professional lifeguards. You know, we do this as a day job. We know what we're doing. We certainly don't need a pack of cards to tell us. And that was quite an information piece to get them to explain why we're doing it and to get them to see it as a, a tool to assist them, not a tool to bind them. And likewise, if you then flip that and you look at it from a clinical governance perspective, if you're running an organization and all your practitioners are running on check cards, it's easy to turn around and say, well, it's great, guys. As long as you stick to what's in the cards, you're governed. If you want to go off piste and don't do what's in the cards, well, then that's on your own head, be it. And it actually allows for some really robust clinical governance. And it, it just stops mistakes. The number of times that we had to look at critical incidents in the RNLI after the introduction of the check cards reduced a ridiculous amount. I won't put a, a, a number on it, but you know we were dealing with a significant number of investigative critical events medically a year prior to the, uh, the, the rollout of the check cards. And since the run of the check cards, it reduced massively during my tenure. And that's because people were just doing what we wanted them to do, not going off piste and not forgetting to do things and doing the maximum they can for somebody at that point in time. And you know, the military have had check cards forever and a day. So I sometimes in awe as to why there is this level of pushback from those higher qualified who I would have thought would have understood the benefits of them. So I had a, a revelation a couple of years back where at the end of a cardiac arrest, I'd kind of gone back through and done a self-debrief and realised that for a significant period of time, actually, I hadn't connected up the oxygen to the oxygen cylinder. And in that cognitive load of, of an arrest, I'd made a, a rookie mistake that had I been assessing ALS, I would have given somebody a, a light wrap over the knuckles for and sat back and thought, well, why have I screwed this up? What was it that led me to do this? And ended up creating a similar, not so much a check card, but a, a list of things to run through at a cardiac arrest. But then I was very reluctant to use it because I felt that that perhaps undermined me so that you know, working with other professionals, you see somebody who pulls out a list and the, the assumption is that, that they don't know what they're doing because they're needing to refer to a, to a it's a lovely It's a lovely point. And that was one of the biggest things that the lifeguards struggled with because they were very, very public-facing on the beach. 
Whereas lifeboat crew, you know, the only person you're treating is oftentimes a casualty if you've gone out a long way to get them. But, you know, the lifeguards are always surrounded by people. And they were worried that if they pulled these cards out and looked at them, people would think they didn't know what they were doing. And we managed to do a piece of work just saying to them, look, if the public quiz you and say, don't you know what you're doing? Rather than get embarrassed about it, the gentle rebuff is to say, I do know what I'm doing, but this makes sure that I do absolutely everything. And by the way, these are my waterproof clinical records. So I can then pass on your details to the ambulance service who can pass them on to the hospital. And that's the best for you. Because these are used to record patient information in, in a hostile environment. And then you can put it across to your PRF. And, and I ask, how many of us as clinicians, when we filled in our patient report form at the end, has gone, oops, forgot to do that? You know, how many times is it the PRF that reminds you of the thing you forgot to do? Or actually, you're with the patient, they, you know, you're still with them. And you're running, filling in your PRF and go, oops, haven't done that bit. As an honesty, how many of us have been there? I'm sure a significant number of uh, listeners have been there. And it would be a case of, well, if that's the case, are we just using a PRF as a clandestine checkup? And what's so wrong with it? That's really interesting. I think, yeah, there's a, a huge amount to digest there. All this talk about check cards, what makes a good check card? That's a, a fab question. I think, because I look back at the very original versions, and we've been lucky enough now to have done three or four versions of the RNLI and then versions for a whole plethora of fire services, police, wilderness medicine, Olympic uh, sailing coaches, maritime medicine, some offshore wind industry. So a whole variety of different sets going to different places. And looking at the fact that so many times, especially the more you know, the more you want to overcomplicate them. And I worked with an amazing guy who helped me uh, with the, the construct of, of learning resources. And it was it's bad understanding that, first of all, the problem we had to overcome, for example, in the RNLI is, is the, the cross-section of, of people there. We have 5% of RNLI crew are 100% illiterate, 20% of RNLI crew at the time initially I, I made these, these are back in the early you know, 2000s, 20% had significant reading issues, primarily dyslexia. And we then had 15% who couldn't read tiny font because they needed reading glasses. And suddenly you're trying to create a device which can be used in all environs and and we found things like font font is crucial using the right font universal font size throughout something i didn't realize because i was just trying to make everything fill up a card as much as i could and for someone with dyslexia flicking between two cards of different font sizes can really trip them up so you have to start when you're designing these things with your busiest card and make sure the font size works for that and so some cards look incredibly empty and you think well why don't i make the font bigger on that but that's where we mustn't Colours are crucial, uh, especially for dyslexia. Font sizes, colours, layout, text size. A lot of these used by rescue teams have to be red light proof. So they have to be red under red light, not white light. They have to be waterproof, robust, able to be written on, rewritten on. You know, what you, you're writing, you're able to use a chemical to wipe it clean and start again. So there's a, a whole plethora of things that have to go in to creating a good pack of cards. Even down to the printer you use, you know, I only ever on the commercial sets I produce use the same printer because I still have a set of check cards in a bucket of water from 2006 and they've still not broken apart. Well, if these things have survived a float test for 15 years, I'm quite happy to use that printer. Whereas I've seen other printers, you know, their, their encapsulation falls to bits very quickly and such like. So it's, it's crucial that you have this robust, easily accessible tool. And it is so easy to make it too hard just to put that extra line in or that extra explanation in. And remember, when you're putting a pack of check cards together, I use this example. 
you know, a person needs to be told when to insert an airway, not how to insert the airway, because how to insert it is down in that procedural memory. What they need is the prompt to insert it. And then it allows them just to access that procedural memory and in it goes. It's, it's that step to getting there. I've been pulling together a kind of continually adapting card for, for my own personal use at cardiac arrests. What about personalising these systems? Does that work as a concept, having something that you've written that works for you? By all means, there's nothing special about, you know, if you just want something that is literally a side of, of A6 that you've done on your own computer and printed out and put through the home laminator, you know, happy days. As long as it does what it needs to be for you everyone has different learning styles some people will like to write copious revision notes some people a single script card you know type flip card so just whatever works for you but having that robustness of character and faith in yourself to say you know what i'm a human i can make a mistake so actually if i have this by my side i won't make a mistake again i ask you why do they have robust rsi checklists in hems Incredibly robust RSI checklist in HEMS. Well, you know, that's because they understand that that can go badly wrong. And actually, you want everything ready to go and everyone on the same page. The amount of times that you get halfway through that checklist and realize that something isn't quite right or you haven't actually got all of the, the relevant bits or somebody doesn't quite understand what we're going to do next. So every time we use it, actually, it shows that there is value in using it. And I think. On the use of check cards, we found two very interesting things as well. And and hopefully this will help people if they're thinking of introducing check card systems. Number one, bear with me for one minute when I talk about sub-healthcare levels. But one of the most crucial things to understand if you're going to put check cards into an educational framework that you are looking after is to understand that they actually have to form the cornerstone of what you're teaching. We found in some places... If, for example, the course has been a classic three-day didactic PowerPoint-based course, and then you just say to the people, you know, pick up a set of check cards on your way out, they'll help you, we've seen those systems fail because the check cards are a tool. And like any tool, you have to be trained to use it. I did this demonstration once to a fire service and picked up their very technical hydraulic cutters. And I picked it up and I just smashed a window with it. And they said, well, what are you doing that for? You don't use these to smash a window. I went, well, they're big and heavy. Can't I smash a window with them? They went, no, no, we surgically dissect cars with them. I went, exactly. You've been trained to use this tool. I've not been trained to use this tool, so I pick it up and it's just a blunt instrument to me. So if you train somebody to use the check cards, it's not about teaching them afterwards. It's about actually the check cards are the course. And if you just bear with this explanation for one minute, so if somebody comes into the room and there's just a pack of cards on their seat, And the instructor at the front just says, look, guys, actually, all I've got to do for the next three days or however long this course is, is teach you that pack of cards. Because in that pack of cards is every condition you will ever see and every piece of kit that you're ever going to be trained in. And actually, if you use the cards to teach the course, you cover the syllabus. You cover the syllabus in a very clever way because all you're doing is reinforcing and reinforcing and reinforcing confidence in the cards. It's a very interesting twist on the way that you educate people. Because if you educate them to use the tool and the tool stops all their problems and solves all their problems, then actually, what more do you need to do? It's a really interesting way of looking at it, I guess, because so often these things are handed out as an aid memoir afterwards, but they're not cemented into that learning cycle and they're not built into the way that you approach your casualty from the start. Exactly. And we find that even down to the point of once the people have done the course, 
and something which is oftentimes very, very alien is normally when you're in a, a team, let's say you're, you know, you're a team of anyone, let's say it's a, a fire service team and they come across a, a casualty. Normally it'll be the strongest clinician will treat the patient. And actually when we're using the card-based systems, we ask the strongest clinician to be on the cards and they have to take that step back so they don't go down the sort of rabbit hole and, and become like that casualty care spaniel. It's very much, I'm, I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to talk to two of my colleagues who have also been trained and say, right, would you please do this? Would you please do this? And when you've done it, come back to me. Very much the way that in medicine, you might have the team leader stood at the end of the bed, instructing his staff to do things, receiving the information back, processing that information, and then making further decisions. And actually, if you bring your strongest clinician off the patient onto the cards, directing other trained people to do the interventions, the whole process works even better. So it's just fascinating to see how these things can be used and actually help high-performing teams perform even better. The other criticism, I guess, that is levelled against this approach is that it reduces the flexibility of dealing with complex situations, complex environments, and reduces the ability to improvise. And a lot of the time on basics courses, we deliberately put people in positions where they're going to have to improvise or they're going to have to adjust the finer points of their approach. But I guess from what you've just explained, actually, because the structure is not going to change fundamentally, actually the check card approach still works in that environment because you're not telling them how to do every individual skill. It's about the structure and about the approach and about the the rhythm of yeah. what they're doing. So we're not, in a sense, what you've just described, your medicine intervention and actually the step-by-step of what you need to do and when you need to do it doesn't change. It's just you need to mitigate that for the environment you're in. So as long as your check card isn't prescriptive based on environment, which it isn't, then you don't have that problem because you're not actually tying people down. You're not saying, you know, you must be kneeling with your hands here in this position. It's not that. It's at this stage, insert airway, you know, and based on what airway that team is carrying. So it might say insert OP or it might say insert NP or it might be insert superglide, whatever is the level of the team. It's that trigger for at this stage. And, and I would say to the people who are like, oh, but it's, you know, what about the environment? Because the environment is going to be concerning you even more. So if you are taken to quite a hostile environment, you're always going to be looking over your shoulder thinking about, am I safe in the environment I'm trying to practice my medicine in? Well, what better then to have something to tell you when to do your medicine? Because again, is that medical professional heading towards their bandwidth because they're in an environment they're very unfamiliar or unhappy with be that a hostile environment be that a wilderness environment so actually you might be an incredible clinician and you're not worried about treating a patient all day every day but are you at bandwidth because the environment's put you at bandwidth so i guess to round things up we need to look at where we go from here what's the future for check card well, i think the first thing is for people to be not scared to be ambassadors for it and to have those robust conversations with the people that are anti or, or don't feel they're required. And whether that be for you just to be able to, as an individual clinician, say, you know what, I will draft my own setup, I'll have my own set with me, and that's going to help me. Or whether, you know, you persuade an organisation. And sometimes persuading the organisation is the governance argument is far more robust with, hang on a tick, if we have these in place, our clinical governance is incredibly robust and life becomes a lot easier for our governors. Sometimes you have to go around the bush to, to get to where you want to get to. But I think it's, 
it's about people not being scared to champion the cause and realizing that it's not in any way, shape, or form insinuating that you are a lesser of a clinician. It's actually showing that you're a thinking clinician who understands that we all can make mistakes. It has to start personally. It's like I had to really fight to drive change RNLI-wise. That, that was quite a fight. And to introduce this whole new training package and to introduce the check cards, you know, there was budgetary constraints. There was, there was so many things. It was a fight. And sometimes you don't make yourself that popular because you, you champion a cause and you fight for a cause. But I always describe it jokingly. You know, for a long time in the early days, it was a three-legged donkey that everyone wanted to kick over. But then when it launched and they saw the effects of it, it rapidly became a gold double-decker bus that they all wanted the keys to. So fight for these things because if you believe in it and we know it works, and I'm proud enough to say, you know, the template that I've put together currently in the UK is in 25,000 rescuers' hands across 15, 16, 17 different organizations. So we know it works. And I just think, and JR Calp knows it works, which is why they put a pocketbook out. So why don't we just accept that check cards in medicine are not a bad thing. It doesn't mean you're less of a clinician. It doesn't mean that you're anything that you shouldn't be. It just means that you accept that humans make errors and we all need a helping hand, especially when things are getting a bit on top of us. With all of these podcasts, we've been getting folk to give three top tips for basics responders as a kind of take-home message. And I suspect you probably covered off the, the basics of those already. But what would your key take-home points be? I think that the three key take-home points would be be robust, don't be scared, don't be scared to champion it, don't be scared to defend it, and then try it. Draw up your own little check sheet and... If you find it works for you, then champion it with your organization. Just say, look, can we look at this from a, a wider perspective? Is there something here to be gained? And I think my third top tip would be then, once you've championed it, once you've drafted it, once you've tested it, not being scared to use it. Pull it out on scene. Put it down by your right knee. Look at it. Use it. And if after an event you think it was good but, then sort out the but bit. Sort out the bit that didn't quite work. You know, if it was an eyesight thing, make it bigger, make the font bigger. If it was a color thing, change the colors, but hone it and hone it and hone it until you get the best version you can. Well, that's fantastic. It's a subject area that I know is, is new to a lot of professional clinicians, but it's something that I think we really need to, to grasp. And it's hugely important because, as you pointed out, this isn't something that we do every day. And, and it's something that's so high consequence, we can't afford to screw no, it up. I think it, it is there. And if anyone wants to reach out, if they want any advice, I'm more than happy to help. If they want to see examples, there's examples on the, the Savior Medical website. Just very happy to help people. They've got questions or queries, just get them to get in touch. Fantastic. And we'll put up some links to the website alongside this podcast. Paul, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and for some you know, really useful advice on where we can go to take this forward. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much indeed for having me. And I'm here to help if anyone wants to get in touch. It'd be a pleasure to talk to anyone about the Jack Cards. Thank you indeed again. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.